everyone, and welcome back to this very special episode of What the Forensics. My name is Nicole. As always, I am joined by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. This episode is a very special one for us. We also have a lovely guest joining us today, the wonderful forensic anthropologist and owner of Suncoast Forensics, Dr. Meredith Tice. Meredith is joining us today to discuss with us and educate us on a project she's been involved with heavily, um, recovering the manes of victims of the now-closed Dozier School for Boys in Florida. I would like to note before we begin that there is going to be some discussions about abuse and death involving children, um, so listeners, please take care. And without further ado, hello, Meredith. Welcome. Hi. Thank you thank so you. much for taking the time out of your day to meet with us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. Um, so to start, tell us a little bit about yourself. I live in Florida and I initially grew up in Georgia and kind of jumped around for college and school. I got my undergraduate degree from the University of Georgia in anthropology my master's degree from Texas State University in forensic anthropology, and my PhD from the University of South Florida in Tampa in anthropology with a focus in forensic anthropology. Wow. And throughout my education, I had the opportunity to do different internships and work at different places to broaden my exposure and gain experience in different areas of forensic anthropology. So the project we're going to talk about today is a project I worked on while a student at the University of South Florida as a PhD student. Okay. So was this a part of like your education or did you just join onto it as kind of an addition to your education, if that makes sense? So while I was going to school at the University of South Florida as a PhD student, I was also the lab manager for the forensic anthropology lab at USF. Okay. And in that role, we would work with law enforcement regularly doing skeletal recoveries, burial recoveries, and then also doing forensic anthropological analyses for cold cases and also active cases of unidentified remains or skeletal remains where there might be trauma. And this was a project that my professor, at the time my advisor, she was really the driving force behind this project. And uh, she was the one that found out about it and really fought to get permission to do a survey and ultimately uh, do recoveries at the school. So we, as students, uh, helped throughout the project, both in the lab and in the field. And I was uh, responsible for helping to organize the project, helping to ensure all the excavations were done thoroughly, all the documentation on the in the field, and then also was responsible for ensuring that we took DNA samples from all the remains that we did recover after returning to the lab. Wow. That is so cool. That's so (laughs) fascinating. I love that your um, professor was like the driving force of why this uncovery happened, like why we know this piece of history now, just because she just wanted answers for people. That's amazing. She did. She had some experience previously in like different human rights contexts internationally. And so that was kind of one of her passions. And so she took this on and uh, it was really, it was really crazy that it was just within driving distance from, from where we lived, but yet it was a very like human rights driven effort, I would say. So yeah, so we worked on it for several years. Um, Sorry. Um, Was there a lot of knowledge on the site 
before you guys started the excavation, like the public knowledge of what had happened? Or did you help expose that? So maybe I'll just start kind of giving a little history about the school yeah, and then okay. we could go into like how the project started. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. Okay. So the project that we worked on um, was at the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys. And that was the name that it was given at the end, at the time of closure. And the school opened in January of 1900. The state of Florida decided that it needed and wanted a place for essentially children under the age of 21, a place for them to go outside of the prison system. So if they were in trouble, um, needed to be placed somewhere, they didn't want to put them in the prison system. And that's because at the time, prisoners were included in the convict lease system. So they were rented out and um, the state of Florida was paid for their labor at farms, all different types of industries. So they wanted to separate children from that, which makes sense. So it was basically a reform school and children were committed there for criminal offenses. So theft and murder, but we later see even minor offenses like dependency, incorrigibility, things like that. And we also saw that there was records of orphans for the state of Florida, as well as wards of the state were sent there as well. Oh, wow. It changed names throughout the years. Um, it started as the Florida State Reform School. It changed in 1914 to the Florida Industrial School for Boys, and then the Florida School for Boys, and then the Dozier School for Boys. Each of those names um, corresponded to different eras of the okay. school and different controversies of oh, the school. Fascinating. So essentially, the Reform School, the state of Florida put out to this to the state for different cities to bid and basically to provide land and also funding in order to build the school. So the city of Mariana is where the school was kind of still is located. Um, and that's essentially about an hour west of Tallahassee, Florida, which is the capital of Florida. They won the bid by offering two, um, 1,200 acres and $1,400 to build the school. And at the time, it was decided that the school would be paid $50 per child by the county that sentenced the child there. So wow. that would be their income in order to pay for housing, food, and things like that. But the school very soon after opening, so 1906 and 1907, decided that they weren't getting enough income, nor did they have enough kids because counties were having to pay this money. And they wanted to basically be more of an income-driven mm -hmm. school. So they changed the sentencing term to 21 years or determined by the court. So the court could decide differently as opposed to the previous sentencing, which was anywhere from six months to four years maximum. Wow. They also eliminated the fees the county paid. That is so crazy. It is. The school made profits on products and the boys' labor. And basically, they reinstated the convict lease system for some of these boys. And by 1913, there's records of the school making over $3 million in convict lease. Oh, from my God. Renting these kids out as young as 10 years old. Wow. Yeah, so it changed very quickly. That to, is ridiculous. Yeah, to these good intentions. And essentially, they decided they needed more labor. So they made it easier for these counties to send kids. But basically, 
the school from the very beginning was known to have abuse going on. So as early as 1901, so one year after it opened, there were reports of kids being chained to the walls, brutal whippings. During the first 13 years of operation, there were more than six state-led operations into the abuse. So this, the state was aware of it. And when we start thinking, when we start talking about the deaths, the newspaper records actually report deaths starting in 1905, but the school actually doesn't document deaths until about 1914. Oh, wow. Holy cow. So there is some conflicting information as far as that goes as well. I did a quick um, conversion because 3 million in 1913 is a lot of money. I looked at to see how much it would cost in. Is it? Yeah, it's. 92 million in today's dollars that's insane <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> it's like to account for inflation so that's i don't know what that's based on but that's crazy wow that's a yeah. lot of money <laughs> i mean i think that's based on the school record so unless they're you know incorrect as far as the school records go but we did a lot of research with the school records to um and like the state of florida records since it was a state-owned school yeah. But that was what they had. So that's wow. insane. That's a lot of labor. <laughs> a lot that's of a, labor. Yeah, lot. It is. So we knew that there were deaths starting in 1904. In, sorry, in 1914, um, November 1914, there were there was really two main dormitories on the campus. And there was a main dormitory on the North Campus, which was for the African-American children. And then on the South Campus, which was for the white children. And on the white side, there were it was a three-story wood dorm. And they had like the dorm bedrooms on the second floor. And on the third floor was the the headmaster's office, but also they had these like almost like solitary confinement rooms. And there were anywhere from up to 10 students that were basically locked in these rooms upstairs and they were chained and the doors were locked. Wow. And supposedly on the second floor, there was a wood stove and it caught fire and no one had the key to get the boys out from the third floor. They had just previously, I think it was about a year before a fire inspector made note that there was no way for kids to get out of the dorm. And so they installed these fire uh, escapes, but it was locked. So they couldn't even get out. So they were having basically the kids on the second floor had to break through these doors to get out of these fire escapes, but no one was able to get into the third floor. So we know that there's almost up to 10 students. So there's no true record. The newspapers are conflicting. And then there were two guards. So a father and son that both worked at the school who also died in this fire when the building collapsed. And some records suggest that they went in to try to help the boys. Other records suggest that they went in looking for each other, like one of them got hurt. So we don't know for sure, but those are the first records of the actual school oh, wow. of deaths happening. And I'll, I'll talk about later, but we actually did find those burned remains when we were doing our excavations. Wow. But that was kind of some of the first evidence of kids being locked up um, in chains. And all of these reports throughout the history of the school, the state of Florida was aware that a lot of this was happening. And even in the late 1960s, the Florida governor went to go tour the school 
And I have a quote from him. It says, if one of your kids were kept in such circumstances, you'd be up there with rifles. Wow. And that gives me chills to think about him saying that because, yeah, I mean, but the school stayed open. So it's just, it's just crazy. That's so crazy. Like he could have done something about it, like being in the position of power he was, or at least could have aided in getting something done so he's that angry about it like i can't believe what they must have been experiencing i know and to like going off of that note too if you have the governor or someone of high authority coming to tour your school typically you're gonna put on a good front for this person too to like show them that not everything's as it seems same thing Yeah. yeah so i can't even imagine if he's already saying imagine these were your kids pretty much than what actually went on behind those doors. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty sad. So one of the first kind of driving forces behind our project, um, there's a group of men who went to the school when they were kids, and they were there mostly in like the 50s and 60s, but they call themselves the White House Boys. And they call themselves that because on the south side of campus, there's a white structure. It looks like a house. And basically it was known for receiving punishment and kids would be sent there to this white house and it's still standing today. So we went inside it and it was horrifying. Essentially it's all concrete. Um, There's a center hallway and then there's like little essentially jail cells on each side And they described that there were twin beds in each room with no mattress. And when they would get in trouble, they were told to lay on their stomachs face down and hold the railing at the end of the bed. And basically they would receive anywhere up to up to or maybe more 100 lashes with like this leather and metal or wood like paddle essentially on their bottoms and they would talk about how they were told that if they screamed they would start over and they said there'd be blood all over the rooms they would have to go to the infirmary after to get their pants pulled out of the lacerations and I mean, these are kids and we'll, I'll talk about it in a minute, but mm-hmm. we found records of kids as young as six years old being sent to the school. So I can't even imagine kids that young. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, that's just heartbreaking. It is. I can't even imagine being the person inflicting that on the boys, though, because to yeah. think of the boys having gone through this, there has to be someone on the other end of that lash or that strap I'm like how yeah, cool how, yeah. to do that how are you a human I know and you can do that yeah wow no it's horrible they some of the boys or some of the men now but they were boys they say that they remembered some of their friends getting sent to the white house and never coming back wow oh my gosh they some of them do talk about seeing kids being killed um, and they were actually tasked with digging the burials for some of these kids on the school property. Wow. So wow. they really came together. They There's videos of them talking about it. And it's just heartbreaking because you have these grown men who their entire lives have been impacted by this in in a negative way, obviously. So they have anger issues, depression, and they really struggled throughout their life. So they came about and we were aware of their story and their fight to 
predominantly get the state of Florida to acknowledge what happened and to even mm-hmm. provide an apology. So they really brought the story to life and they have like annual gatherings and try to support one another. So the other thing that started coming about was there were family members who had their brother, their uncle basically be sent to the school for various reasons and they died at the school. And so their entire existence and their parents' existence was a fight to find this child that was there. So one of the family members was Ovel Krell and her brother, his name was George Owen Smith. He was sent there in, I think it was 1940. And he was one of three boys who stole a car and he was in the back seat, but he was only, I think, 12 or 13 at the time. So he was sent there to Dozier. Um, obviously, the parents did not want him to go, but he was sent there as punishment. And her mom would constantly write letters back and forth with George. And eventually the letter stopped. And then she, the mom, received a letter from the school basically saying that he was missing from the school and they didn't know where he was and that they would let them know. But also they would appreciate if the mom would um, notify them immediately if they received any word from him. So she wasn't sure where he was. And then not too long after, they supposedly found his body too decomposed for an autopsy under a house after running away. Wow. So they have no idea how he died. And it was over the winter. Um, I think he went missing in like December, January of 1941 and then was found, I believe, in March or so. But I mean, a child just doesn't die under a house. When you say under a house, do you mean like underneath the deck or like in the foundation? Uh, Like under the deck or the crawl space. Okay. Okay. So not like built into not that. like murdered viciously, yeah. but yeah. okay. So I I've talked to actually a couple people that grew up in this town, and they talk about hearing sirens and dogs and knowing that that meant that a boy ran away, and so they would see like people searching essentially just like it was a prison, but they're looking for these little kids. Wow! And so it's just crazy to think that they grew up with that but that was normal to them because their parents or you know family members worked at the school it was a source of income and that was part of the reason that this city fought to have it in their town so yeah yeah. anyway so she was one of the first family members to come forward and then we had another family member the gentleman who contacted us his dad and uncle were sent to the school in 1934 and charged with malicious trespassing and only 34 days after arriving his uncle died of pneumonia Um, and they said that it was a possible cause of anemia at the age of 13 so the school insists that thomas the the boy that died was sick upon arrival but based on the the gentleman that we spoke to and he said his dad insisted that his brother was not sick when they arrived. Mm -hmm. So we don't know exactly how he died, but he was fighting to find his uncle as well. So similar situation to George Owen Smith to where the family actually went up to the school. They had to rent a car uh, or sorry, they had to borrow a car from their um, local church and they drove up to get his body and she remembers being walked somewhere. She was a young 
girl at the time. And they showed her a burial that had already taken place and said, oh, he's here. He's already buried. Wow. Essentially, you can't take him. Wow. Yeah. That's horrible. It is. So they fought to try to find him and try to bring him home. And her parents were never able to. So she was very important in this project to help from a family member's perspective mm-hmm. to help push it as far as trying to locate where these graves were. It's amazing that you do have that family push and drive that there were still family members that cared. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it made a big difference mm-hmm. because it wasn't just us as researchers wanting to go in and dig up this yeah. cemetery. Yeah. You actually had family members that were looking for their loved ones. So I think it made a big difference. Yeah. When we started the project, we had found records that the state of Florida insisted that there were 31 boys that had died at the school and were buried on us in a school cemetery. So there are more boys that had died at the school, but some of those records suggest that they were either sent home to family members or buried in local cemeteries and things like that. But they on record of 31 boys being buried at the school. And so we actually went up to Tallahassee to the state of Florida archives and the school had these huge ledger books and essentially each row was a student that was admitted to the school and it has their name, their age, where they were born, their parents' name, it has their offense, and then it has the date they were committed and the date that they were to be released. And so some of the ages are anywhere from, we found six years old, Mm -hmm. 10 years old, 12 Um, a full range. There actually were some kids from Alabama and Georgia as well that were sent there. So from neighboring states. And most of the boys that we found were basically sentenced to until the age of 21. Wow. So just a blanket, no matter what their offense was Mm -hmm. um, until the age of 21. So if they were convicted of, or say it was actually murder or something more serious, then they may actually be released to the prison at the age of 21. Okay. But most of them were just sentenced to the age of 21. Well, you were saying um, when we last met briefly that like kids just trying to provide for their families and maybe just being caught stealing a loaf of bread. Absolutely. Getting sent to the school and then just suffering through that. That is so horrific. I'm sorry that you experienced that, but I'm also like glad that you were a part of that and like uncovering this story. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely so back then I was, you know, a PhD student. I was young and single and it was amazing to be a part of. But now that I'm married with two kids and I have two boys Mm -hmm. that aren't quite this this age, I have a three and a five year old, but trying to imagine my little boy going to a school like this is just horrifying nightmares. Um, And even today when I go back and watch the white house boys, like some of those men talking about their story, it just affects me differently Mm -hmm. now that I'm um, older and have kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can't imagine what the families and the parents of these kids are going through. Now, granted, some of them may not have had that support network at home, but I think many of them did. They may just have been, in a lower socioeconomic status and trying to help their families or, you know, maybe deviant for 
you know, which is typical young of boys little boys. Being young boys, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it is pretty, um, pretty devastating to think about what these families went through, and and obviously what the boys went through as well. So the school, based on the ledgers that we found, we found about a hundred deaths that actually happened at the school between. 1914 and 1973. Um, and those were boys aged six to 18 years old. And then the two adult staff members that died in the 1914 fire. Um, but most weren't reported to the state. Most didn't have death certificates. And a lot of them had an unknown cause of death from what we could find on the records. But like I said, there were 31 boys that were buried at the school on their records, 45 were shipped home, 22 had no indication of where they were buried. But there were about 8% of those that died following escape attempts. Maybe a quarter of them died within the first three months at the school, and maybe half of those were within the first month. So it's just interesting, kind of, you would think that this information would have come to light earlier. Mm-hmm. When we we did this research and we knew of one cemetery that was actually marked at the school. So and that cemetery was called Boot Hill Cemetery. And it was just north of the school um, on top of a hill. And we even talked to some former students who said they remembered looking at the dining hall and you could actually see the cemetery up on top of this hill. So now there's a lot of pine trees and stuff like that. And it's very full. But obviously, 50 years ago, 50, 60 years ago, it probably looked very different. But on that hill there, when we arrived, there were 31 white crosses basically placed in nice, clean rows. And then there was like a kind of a wire fence put around it. So we assumed this would be where the burials were, but we weren't sure. So We did ground penetrating radar over the entire top of that hill. So where the crosses were, as well as outside of the marked um, potential cemetery to locate any disturbances. So for anyone that's not familiar with ground penetrating radar, it's basically looks like a big stroller and you push it and it's sending radio waves down into the ground and it's going to give you an indication um, on the screen if there's potential disturbance in the ground. So um, the radio waves go down and come back up at a certain speed. And if the soil is less dense and has been disturbed, it may come back up faster. So you're going to see that disturbance. So it's not going to show you what's buried, but it'll show you that something possibly would be buried. When I think of ground penetrating radar, I always think of like you put your little stroller across and then the skeleton's right there and you see it. I wish. (laughs) Yeah, that would make our life so easy. (laughs) Uh, No, it's it's actually some law enforcement agencies and universities have them, um, but it really takes a lot of training and experience to really know how to read them. So a lot of times we rely on like private consulting companies, like geology companies that do it full time. But we were able to use that. And we found based on that, about 55 areas that we wanted to excavate. And that was based on the disturbances in the soil. So in the meantime, we also did surveys with ground penetrating radar throughout other areas of the school. So we knew that since a lot of these deaths happened 
during a segregated time in history when they made this huge effort to separate African-Americans from white students. Um, we didn't know if they also were doing that in death as well. So did they separate them to where there might have been two cemeteries or were they putting them together? So we really searched. Boot Hill Cemetery was just north of the African-American side um, and it was separated by this now it's a three-lane road. There's two lanes and a turn lane. So it probably was just a two-lane road at the time, but it is separated by a major road that goes up into the downtown area of Mariana. So we searched through the white side pretty extensively to try to find a different cemetery. And so far, we have not been able to find one. It may be there. So we mainly focused our efforts on Boot Hill Cemetery to start to try to see what we could find. And um, we identified these areas to potentially excavate. And in se September 2013, we started the excavation process. Based on our ground penetrating radar information, we used an excavator with a flat blade to scrape the surface. And as it went down, we knew the GPR ground penetrating radar could give you an approximate depth. So we knew the approximate depth of each of these burials so we could scrape down quite a bit and know we weren't going to hit the bottom of these burials, potentially where the skeletal remains would be. So using that flat blade as it was scraping away, it was amazing because you could actually see this, the red clay. And then as it would scrape the soil flat, you could see dark brown ovals forming and then they would stop. And then you'd have another one and they would be in these rows. And basically we were able to mark out these ovals or like sometimes they were rectangular and we had found these burials. So we started these excavations, took a few weeks at a time. And throughout the process, we found a total of 55 graves, just like we had identified on the GPR. Some of these skeletal remains were in caskets, although the caskets were, all the wood was completely deteriorated. The Georgia red clay is very acidic. And then also we found some of them were kind of at the level of the water table to where it would rise and fall with the tides. So they, these skeletons were constantly getting wet and then drying out. And when that happens over a long period of time, it just, the bones are still there but they are very, very fragile. And so we recovered all 55 burials. We think that there was probably a total of 51 actual individuals. And the reason I say that is because we actually did find in a row a large handful of burials in infant caskets, and it was full of burnt skeletal remains. And so we think they were from that 1914 fire. And because they didn't know exactly how many boys were there, they basically just scooped up piles of what they thought were bones, which most of them were, and put them in these little infant caskets. And so based on research of how many kids we think were actually in the fire, we think there was a total of 51 boys buried here and potentially also those two staff members that died in the fire as well. Was there any evidence on the site for some sort of crematorium to explain why there weren't so many burials? No, I don't think they might have used a crematorium in town, but 
I think that, I don't know. I think there were a lot of boys sent home, but I don't know why some would have been sent home and not others unless they're trying to hide something. Yeah, exactly. And when you say they were sent home, are they quite literally handing over these dead children to their families? Is that what's happening? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, and back then, so like in the 40s, for example, the families would go bring them home. Okay. They might have had some type of transportation like to help with it, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times back then the families would just go get them and bring them back to be buried with their family or they might be like shipped home, Mm -hmm. you know, essentially like, but I don't know the details of that necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I think that the boys that were here either died traumatically Mm -hmm. or in the fire, for example, Um, We do know that the 1918 flu epidemic, there were a large number of kids to die Mm -hmm. at that time as well. Um, And I think throughout, I know within the U.S. and probably in Canada as well, a lot of people did die Mm -hmm. during the 1918 flu epidemic. I know my grandfather, he's 105 and he was born in 1918, but he said that he remembered his parents talking and it reminded him of COVID. Wow. And that epidemic. But we heard stories of and read stuff about how kids were just basically locked in the school and left because the staff members didn't want to take care of them during 1918. So a lot of them did die. And I think at that time, maybe family members just couldn't come get them. Yeah. So we conducted those excavations. Um, We documented the skeletal remains, anything that was found with them. We found belt buckles we found a couple marbles inside pockets like that would be right next to their hip we found buttons in a couple of them we found like coins that would have been placed over their eyes so just different wow. like traditions and things like that we found evidence of and so after we did the recoveries we took them back to our lab and we were able to conduct partial skeletal analysis on them to estimate their age so Um, using dental development because the teeth were still in amazing condition. Uh, We were able to do dental development and estimate age for each of these kids. And then also we could estimate ancestry based on the teeth with the crenulation on the molars to estimate whether they were most likely African-American or um, white children. So there was some record of like Hispanic kids being sent there. And I know that I had read that there was some like confusion of where they should go prior to desegregation. Do they go to the African-American side or the white side? And many times they would kind of move them in between them. But we didn't have on record any of those kids actually being buried at Dozier. So we don't know if we have any of them, but we were able to essentially estimate the age and ancestry, which helped us a lot when it came to kind of trying to narrow down a possible identity for each of these kids. Yeah, it's quite, I don't know if fortunate's the right word, that they were between the ages of 6 to 21, so like their skulls aren't fully developed so that you can actually differentiate between ages with their teeth as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of helped. It, it helped yeah. to, you know, because if you had like a normal male prison and they're all adults, being able to distinguish one from another would be very, very difficult. Yeah. If they were in this type of condition. So 
we were able to do that. And then we were able to send off teeth to do a DNA analysis. So the teeth were definitely the best preserved. So we did that to attempt to identify some of these boys, especially the family members that had contacted us. And then, as I mentioned previously, we worked with genealogists to try to find additional family members, um, many of which had no clue that their child or that their sibling or uncle or you know, a distant relative was there. My other grandfather, he grew up in central Florida and he remembers at school, they'd be like, oh, you don't want to be sent to Dozier. Wow. So it was used as like a a threat almost to these kids. And he said they were terrified to be sent there. So it was definitely something that kind of haunted the state and probably the Southeast in general. Yeah. I know you mentioned earlier that some kids were orphans there. So was not every kid like a quote unquote criminal? Yeah, I think they used the school as kind of like a boarding house as well. Just group them all together, uh, unfortunately. So it was essentially a catch all for the state. Yeah. So I know that there was a separate school for girls and I don't know whatever happened to that. So initially... This school started out in 1900 for boys and girls oh, wow. to be sent there. And oh, I wow. think they realized quickly that that probably wasn't a good idea yeah. <laughs> to have them together. Yeah. <laughs> so they moved the girls to a different location in the state. And I don't, I'm not familiar with where they were sent, but in the end, it just ended up being boys that were at the school. Yeah. I'd be intrigued to see if there was the same level of abuse at the girls' yeah, school as that well. That would be interesting. And I think that... Mm-hmm. It's just crazy to think that probably throughout the U.S. and most likely Canada, there were schools like this all over, and this could have happened at any of them. We just may not know about it. So I know you had mentioned that there were schools in Canada where you're aware of this happening. Yeah, the residential schools. Yeah, it does sound very, very similar to the residential schools that we had. And I know there are some in the States too. I'm just not sure if they were as prevalent or where they Mm -hmm. were located. Yeah, I don't know either. I know when we were doing this project, we really weren't aware of any other projects similar to this. There are a lot of excavations going on now of old Native American cemeteries, trying to preserve them. And then like I've heard of other projects at like state hospitals and things like that but not necessarily young kids at schools. So it's definitely unique yeah. in that sense. I will say it's quite amazing though, that like the work that you guys are doing for this though, is bringing that awareness and the knowledge. Cause if I didn't know this state reform with school was a thing. And so to be able to have that work conducted on it and to have these names placed and like associated with these boys, it just, it kind of creates that extra level of connection and understanding and like I said, like awareness to what happened and honestly was still yeah. happening because you you had mentioned they closed it in 2011, was it? Yeah, it did in 2011. Wow. So I don't know if any of the abuse happened up till then. I mm-hmm. would hope not, yeah. but you don't know. It was interesting because while we felt like we were doing a good thing, which we were, when we would go to this town, we would stay there in a hotel and then we would go out to dinner. And it was a very uncomfortable dynamic because we're going to this little town where either people that 
we were seeing out or their family members, their parents had worked at the school and felt pride in having a part of the school. And they felt like we were bringing a bad name to their town. So they were actually like opposed to us being there. Really, they felt like we were coming Mm -hmm. in to kind of destroy a reputation that they might have as a a positive place. And so it was weird being there. You know, I mean, maybe if you're going internationally, you Mm -hmm. could experience that as well. But especially in the U.S., it wasn't something that I anticipated Mm -hmm. kind of feeling while we were there and working. It's fascinating that the abuse and stuff that happened at this school is so kind of well known now. I'd assume that community members also knew about it. So it's just fascinating that they still take pride in a school that caused so much hurt. It's just it's different to see that perspective. I wouldn't have expected it. Yeah, I think I think it's because it's such a small town um, and you really get that like small town feel. Um, But that was really their biggest industry that they had there. And so it was it was weird because you didn't really feel welcome in the town. So just a, a weird dynamic. But in the end, as of a few years ago, we had located about 17 different family members. And that was, like I said, through genealogy, word of mouth, things like that. And of those with DNA, we were able to positively identify eight of the boys that we recovered, two of which were the two family members that I had um, mentioned, George Owen Smith and Thomas Barnado. Um, They were actually some of our first ones that we identified and they were white boys that were in the cemetery. So we knew at that time and based on our analysis that there were African-Americans and white boys um, mixed together in the cemetery. And then we feel like we were able to make about 14 presumptive identifications. So based off of age, ancestry, the area that they were buried, the casket hardware that they um, were buried with and things like that. So they're currently all the ones that were identified were returned to the family, but the other ones that have been identified, they have been reburied, but they're marked in a way that if we were able to identify them in the future, we could find them and return them to their families. So they would have that type of closure if they if they wanted that. Were they reburied on the grounds of Dozier School? So some of them were like some of the fire victims that we haven't been that we haven't been able to identify they were buried back on the school grounds so i think that it's really just because the state doesn't know what to do with them yeah but i think as they're identified i hope that a family member would take them home mm-hmm. with them and bury them so it's it's interesting just to kind of you know what do you do with them now that we've We've done these recoveries, done analysis, like we don't really know where to put them while they're kind of waiting to find their family. And some of them may never be identified, but at least they, at least the state of Florida has acknowledged that they didn't have accurate records for how many Mm -hmm. uh, were buried at the school. They've also acknowledged the abuse and apologized for a lot of the abuse. No one was ever criminally held accountable. There was one individual that the White House boys specifically remember being prominent in the abuse that they sustained. And I don't know if he's still alive today, but when we were doing the project, he was still alive, but he was very elderly and refused to talk completely. So we weren't able to prove that any abuse happened to any of the skeletal remains that we found. 
but I think a lot of it is just the fact that the state has acknowledged it and the school's closed now. So we know it's no longer happening, at least here. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. a big part of the closure that a lot of these family members needed. With that closure that those so. family members have, are is there any talks of continuing the search or like continuing to try and identify the remaining boys to give those remaining families closure? There has been continued efforts to do genealogy searches to try to find them. And then I know that University of South Florida has continued excavations and searching for potentially additional cemeteries. So I think that we feel like there might be other burials on site. So at one point, a developer did purchase the property, but the state of Florida basically put it on hold for development so that any yeah. of this could be, the searches could be finalized. Um, we haven't found any other cemeteries per se. I know that after I graduated, they did locate the location of the burned dorm that um, many of the boys died in. And they did find some skeletal remains in the foundation underground. So um, they were able to recover those remains as well. But I don't think they've been able to find any other full burials. Okay. Yeah. Right. And how big was this site? I don't remember if you said or not. So it was probably not very big. Um I'd say like a okay. quarter of a football field, maybe like. Oh, wow. That's much smaller than I oh, expected. Wow. Okay. wow. Yeah. Maybe like a yeah. quarter to a half, maybe. But basically the top of this hill was grass with like one tree at the top kind of. And then it was surrounded. There was grass and then it was surrounded by like pine trees and woods. And some of the burials actually did extend into a part of the woods that wasn't necessarily um, full of trees, but it wasn't maintained very well. So they just assumed that there was nothing over there. Um, this was to the north of the crosses. So we had it cleaned up in order to do GPR. And luckily we did because we did find burials up into an overgrown area that wasn't taken care of. So it had been mowed by, there was a correctional facility, like a modern correctional facility not too far away. And so they would continue to mow it um, essentially where the crosses were. But I think the area got smaller over time. And so the barrels actually did kind of extend closer to the trees than we anticipated. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what year did you say that you started this project or started working there? 2013. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not long after it closed. No. Wow. No. Okay. So we had the opportunity to go on the school grounds, obviously, to do searches, but they also reluctantly allowed us to go into some of the buildings. And so we would go in the dorms and, I mean, furniture was still there, beds, and um, we went in a lot of the buildings. The main building, I think is what they call it, is basically where they would check in the boys when they would come. And we were told like horror stories of these doctors doing like sound therapy on the kids and stuff like that to try to correct their behavior. Oh my gosh. And I mean, that's an old, old science, you know, like we, we know that that's not really effective. Yeah. Yeah. But, I don't think I've ever heard of sound therapy. So that's interesting yeah. that you mentioned that. Yeah, I've only heard so, of it as like EM or EDMR nowadays, but it's a little bit different or a lot different, but 
<laughs> yeah. So I think, um, that was where like the psychologists were as child psychologists and stuff like that. So we would go in, in buildings like that, but obviously our main goal was try to find any other burials that might be on the property. How long did you guys, um, like dig for how long was your study? Cause I know you said you spent a couple weeks, um, yeah. excavating, but I feel like the process before and then the research after would have prolonged kind of that whole project. It absolutely did. So our excavation process, actually, we did it in two different phases. The first phase was basically excavating all the areas with GPR indications outside of where those white crosses were. So the white crosses were kind of making up a perfect square. So we left that for the second phase, thinking that's probably where most of the burials are going to be located, we assumed. Yeah. And, lo and basically excavated the entire area around it. And that took about two weeks um, wow. of like full-time excavation. And then yeah. we came back a couple weeks later and spent about another week excavating just where those crosses were. Um, and in the end, there were, I think, only 13 burials where the actual crosses indicated. Wow. And the rest of them were found outside of that suggested cemetery area. Mm -hmm. So do you think that that cemetery there was kind of just for show for the people yes. that worked there? I was wondering that too. Absolutely. Wow. I think the state thought there were 31 burials there. That's what they had on record. Yeah. And at some point, someone made the decision to create these crosses to basically acknowledge the cemetery yeah. and make it look like they were maintaining it and things like that. So. I mean, at least they made an effort. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. So yeah. I know that um, they have created a memorial also around the White House. So okay. as of 2023, actually January 2023, so last year, there was a memorial created and it was placed basically around the White House. So, and it's these statues of boys that were there kind of commemorating the boys that were there. And then there's, there's discussions on other monuments to be constructed, um, one on the campus of the school, and then also one on the state capitol to acknowledge the school. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's, it's a part of history that, you know, we don't necessarily want to remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it doesn't have any positive light to it. So I think the state has, has made efforts to acknowledge it and to apologize. So that's really what matters. Yeah. So it's definitely a painful part of history, but I think it's amazing that they did make an effort to memorialize the victims of this school. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then just kind of lastly, uh, I know we kind of briefly touched upon it earlier, but what would you say was the most challenging or rewarding aspect of, you know, working on this project, being a part of that team and undergoing everything that you did in that process? So I would say as far as the most challenging, it was definitely searching for families. We had to get outside help from um, genealogists, law enforcement detectives to try to help us search through different ancestry resources and try to find 
family members to provide reference samples. So I think that was definitely the hardest part of it. I didn't play a large role in that aspect because I was tasked with actual excavations Mm -hmm. and analyses of these remains. But, you know, the whole time we're hopeful that they could find more more families. Yeah. So that was definitely the most challenging part. As far as the most rewarding, while we were there, we did have some of the family members come out to the cemetery to observe the excavations and the process and just the gratefulness that they showed because their entire lives they've dealt with this horrible memory and um, really this hope for answers. So the fact that they were finally getting it, I would say that's the most rewarding. I mean, I think for most of the forensic sciences, you do it for the victims and for their families. And so that it's different because most forensic anthropology cases that I work on, you don't interact with the families. Yeah. But this is one of the rare instances where they were there and they observed it and just, they were so grateful for us to be there and, and for our efforts. I'm glad that they got that sense of closure because I can't too. imagine the years they spent wondering yeah. and just creating every possible scenario. Um, Absolutely. But to have those answers, I hope it healed them a little bit and I hope they are doing okay. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. But thank you so much um, for this discussion and coming to join us. It has been deeply enlightening, deeply thought provoking. And um, we are so appreciative that you have joined us today. Um, as deep and dark and sad as the history of the school is, it is amazing to see that, you know, names are being placed to these boys and they're not just lost in kind of the sea of everything. Um, and thank you for teaching us about that firsthand experience that you had to go through with the project to uncover these victims. For our listeners, if you do want to, Uh, learn more about Meredith's work, make sure to check out her Facebook and Instagram, both at Suncoast Forensics, or go right to her website at suncoastforensics.com. You specialize in forensic training and consulting services, right? I do, yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So there are lots of um, in-person training options. There's online e-courses. Journey and I were joking before everyone got on the call that we got to go down and do like a week long for, uh, Florida trip. <laughs> yeah. We'll do a training session with you and we'll hit up Aaron and Ashley, get a training session with them. You definitely so should. Right? Dig in the sand and the sun just for yeah. some skeletons. <laughs> yeah. Three of my favorite things. Honestly, it sounds yeah. like the best vacation. <laughs> but again, thank you so much for our listeners. You probably know already where to find us all. But um, we are Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics, our Twitter or X at WT Forensics PC, website whattheforensics.ca. And next episode, we will actually be having a discussion on the Atlanta child murders and behavioral analysis. Thank you, everyone listening, for joining us. Thank you, Meredith. Again, I'm. This is like the fiftieth time I've said it, but we are just so <laughs> thankful that you Thanks, are guys. joining us. Um, we hope that everyone enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm